Thank you, Stephen. Praise God. Uh, this morning, I have the opportunity to introduce um, a friend, a brother that uh, a lot of us know and have known for a very long time. I think when um, our speaker today first came to our church, he was single, uh, not in ministry, um, among many other things, um, maybe had a little bit more hair, but nonetheless, uh, he has grown a lot. Has a lot of things have happened in his life, um, um, both both blessing and, and and tragedy. But 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 through it all, um, I think if you ask Danny, he'll tell you a um, hundred out of a hundred times that uh, God has been good and God has been faithful um, in the good times and in the struggles. So, uh, Danny Chen is um, is our speaker this morning. Um, he is um, the area director with InterVarsity. Um, in, in the Florida area, I don't know the specific areas of Florida, but wherever he's been, uh, a lot of fruit's been born, and, and we're so blessed to be part of that. Um, of course, I'm a little bit biased because uh, he first started um, the, uh, his ministry at UCF, which, uh, in which, aware of which I am an alma mater, um, like many of you. So um, please give him a very, very warm welcome. This is Danny Chen. Thanks, man. All right. Can you guys hear me okay? Wow, look at this full house. This is beautiful. Um, you know, I was just in there looking at, like, my calendar and recalling on the events of my life, and I realized that I think next month will mark, like, 10 years since I've been uh, in relationship with you guys, with this community. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, like, uh, like Seho said, I had a little bit more hair, just like a little bit of turf up top. And most of it has made a southward migration to the southern hemisphere over here. So um, a few of you guys laughing got it. But uh, <laughs> cool. Well, I'm really excited to be here today. Um, yeah, just honored, honored that uh, Pastor DL uh, is so generous to share his pulpit with me. Uh, I love this community. Many, uh, many of you guys are my uh, good and personal friends. So uh, it's, it feels like a homecoming for me. Uh, so I definitely don't mind driving all the way out uh, this way to, to see you guys every now and then. So um, I'm going to begin by uh, kind of reading um, the passage where I would like to share with us from this morning. Um, and it's a narrative from uh, the book of Mark in chapter 5. Um, and I just love these narratives because um, they're stories. They're, they're the gospel through stories. Uh, so as I kind of read this, I just want to invite us to kind of get into a posture of, uh, of listening uh, and following along, uh, and if it's not too difficult to kind of put yourself as a spectator uh, in the setting of the story as you kind of observe what is happening um, as the story unfolds, okay? So we're going to be reading out of um, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. <clears throat> they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Not one, uh, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large Herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirit came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came, Jesus uh, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. 
Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat and the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the, De- in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The word of the Lord. All right. So um, like Seho mentioned, I work for a uh, campus ministry organization called InterVarsity. And I am currently uh, in the role as an area director. Uh, so I oversee a bunch of different campuses. Uh, now, what we oftentimes have to do when we meet new students, uh, I see a couple of our former students in here as well, so they'd be familiar with this. Uh, but uh, what we oftentimes have to do when we meet a whole new group of students is when we get a bunch of people in a room and we're trying to help them get to know each other, uh, is we will play uh, some different games and icebreakers to help people get to know each other. And one of the things that we like to play, and, and, and I'm kind of partial to this because I like to create awkward situations for people, right? I'm kind of a little bit of a troublemaker, if you know me personally, uh, is, uh, is a game called Would You Rather. So this is a game where you, uh, we pass around a bowl and there are slips of papers, each outlining some kind of re- weird, awkward, oftentimes funny, would you rather scenarios uh, where people will draw and they will read it out loud and kind of choose make a choice of what they would rather do and explain why. Uh, it gets, usually gets people laughing, gets them loosened up, uh, puts the guards down, and uh, yeah, just everybody kind of getting to know each other a little bit. So I'm going to give you guys some examples, and I actually want you guys to turn to the person next to you and actually answer what you would rather do and really quickly say why, okay? So scenario number one, okay? Would you rather give up bathing for a month or give up the internet for a month? Talk to your neighbor next to you. Jairo, what'd you choose? <laughs> internet. Nice. We got a clean boy right here. Jairo chose he would rather give the internet because he's a clean guy. He's single. You guys should watch out for Jairo. So, cool. Um, all right, here's another one, okay? Would you rather, listen to this, would you rather have your shirts be always two sizes too big or one size too small? My, my shirt's a little bit... Uh, one size too small right now because I gained a lot of weight. I was having trouble deciding what to wear. It was like either this like baggy dress shirt this morning or, or this guy right here. So sorry about that. So it goes like this when I bend over. So yeah. It'll come to you sooner or later, you guys, when you hit the mid-30s. Um, okay, check this one out, okay? This one's a good one. Ask your neighbor and share with each other, would you rather have your breath smell like a bad fart or have your laugh always sound like a fart? Anybody want to demonstrate that laugh? <laughs> That's good, right? So, um, look how happy you guys are. This is the exact point of having these games, right? So, um, so these are some of the examples of some of the would-you-rather scenarios that we would, you know, have students go around answer. And it's really hilarious. But every now and then, we also have some questions that are a little bit deeper, and that reveals a little bit more about your character and, uh, yeah, just a little more serious. So, for example, one of the ones that has kind of come up over and over again is this one. Would you rather, okay, would you rather have an awesome talent and never get recognized for it? Or would you rather be famous for something stupid? And we see this in society, right? I mean, I think the reason why this is so difficult to answer is because all of us, to, to some extent, we want to know that our life is amounting to something, right? Nobody wants to be known or famous because of something stupid or bad or horrible, right? So, for example, like, in society, bless you over there, brother. Uh, so, in society, we have people that are, like, I mean, nowadays, like, with the internet, like, streaming everything, we see people who are famous for, like, dumb things all the time, right? We have people that are famous because they made a fool out of themselves, right? Like, nobody wants to be, like, nobody wants to be, like, the, the cash-me-outside girl, Right? It's just like, some of you guys are like, who is that, right? Look it up. It's really ridiculous, right? Uh, and some people are, are famous because they are like scam artists. They uh, made a living for defrauding people, right? So, uh, or just like lying. I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking about like Frank Abagnale from uh, Catch Me If You Can. You guys know? 
I actually think his life is pretty awesome. He, like, got away with so many things, right? But ultimately, like, he was committing a crime his whole life. And, and he is known today because of that, because of how gifted he is at defrauding the, the system, right? Um, and then throughout history, we see plenty of people who are famous and well-known because they're literally, like, psychopathic murderers that, commit, that committed genocides, right? Thinking about, like, people like Hitler, right? Nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be famous because of something horrible that they had done. Everybody wants to be known because of something good that they had done. And yet this morning, we're looking at a story where Jesus is having an encounter with somebody who was rather famous for no good reason. Right? We're talking about this guy who was living in the tombs. He was possessed. And we're looking at this scripture describing this unlikely and unexpected interaction between Jesus, the God of the universe, and somebody who would have been an outcast in society, right? It tells us that not only was this man possessed by demon, but he was possessed by a whole legion of them, right? That's a military unit of measurement that, that, that uh, amounts up to 6,000, right? So that would have been an immediate red flag because to the Jewish society of the day, Anybody that is possessed by demons were considered as unclean, right? Let alone being like 6,000 demons, right? And another thing about this, you know, uh, uh, this scripture is that this man who was possessed by demon, he was most likely a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, right? Who would have been seen by the Jewish community as inferior, as second-class citizen. How do we know? How do we know that he may have been a Gentile? Any of my university students, inductive study, what did you guys notice? What did you pull out? I'm not going to put you on the spot, right? Pigs. When you see the word pigs, right, you would have known that pigs was something that the Jewish society would have avoided at all costs, right? So since they're in an area where there's herds of thousands of pigs, that will likely tell us that this is an area that is not populated by Jewish communities. So therefore, this is an area that is run by uh, Gentile, non-Jewish people. And in Jesus' time, they were viewed as inferior, uh, outsiders, second-class citizens that are unworthy to actually be interacted with, right? Uh, and it tells us that in this passage that uh, this man was night and day was crying out from the tombs. He was cutting himself. Uh, some of the other accounts of the same story in other books tells us that he was naked, he was chained to the ground, and he was kept uh, watched by guard all, at all times. So effectively, Mark was describing somebody who, uh, who the local people wanted to have nothing to do with, right? A Gentile who was being uh, possessed by thousands of, of demons. Uh, I think what Mark was basically trying to describe here as he writes the story is that this was the ultimate loser in the Jewish mind. This was the ultimate loser of the Jewish mind. That is why this story is so powerful because we're looking at a story of an interaction between the God of the universe with somebody who is an ultimate loser uh, in this world that nobody would have wanted to trade places with. And how this unlikely and unexpected interaction actually resulted not only in the personal restoration of this man, but it inspired mission to the unreached world and it inspired witness for the gospel. So let me pray for us as we kind of begin to dive into this. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would um, speak to me right now uh, and you would speak through me, uh, that you will open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. Uh, allow nothing that is not from you to come out of my mouth. Uh, and may every word that I say be in honoring to you. So we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think to understand this story... Uh, we actually need to take a look at the crucial setting and context of this. Because I think uh, what actually happened before the story and what hap what's happening after the story is actually very informing of the significance of the story. Uh, so I want you guys to, I mean, if you have your Bibles open still, you can take a look. But if not, you can just listen in. But the stories that come right before this passage in Mark 5, uh, there's a couple of very important kind of uh, events that took place. One is that before Jesus and his disciples got into the boat and crossed over, uh, there was this encounter where Jesus was approached by two different uh, Jewish men from his own, uh, from his own community. Uh, and both of these men wanted to come and follow Jesus, right? They're making kind of these blind uh, uh, commitments of wanting to follow Jesus. Uh, and Jesus welcomed that. Jesus actually uh, welcomed that, wanted them to join him and get into the boat. Uh, but as he outlined kind of the true cost what, of what it would look like to follow him, both of these men kind of like chickened out, 
if you will, right? Uh, so the first man was somebody that was presumably wealthy. He had a reputable life. He had a promising future. Uh, and to, to him, Jesus said to him, to him, Jesus invited him by saying that the son of man has no place to lay his head, right? Basically saying that you want to follow me? Good, I want you to follow me. But know that this journey is a journey where it's not even guaranteed that I will have a place to sleep at night, right? And to that, the, 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 the seemingly like discomfort that Jesus is painting in this picture caused this man to turn around and go away and not follow through, right? The second man is perhaps somebody that we, uh, as a majority kind of Asian-American community, might be able to identify with, right? Because the second man, his concern was not necessarily about wealth or um, status, whatever, but it's about fulfilling his familial duty, right? He wants, he says, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father, right? And, th- and I've actually preached this sermon, I think, uh, 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 during one of my previous visits, right? Uh, but we know that in this passage, the scholars, biblical scholars, have agreed that he wasn't speaking in terms of his father had just died, and therefore he, he's in, in a season of grieving. But he's actually speaking uh, kind of metaphorically about this idea that I want to follow you, but I want to be a good Jewish son first. So let me go make sure my father lives a good rest of his life. And then when he dies, let me properly bury him and grieve him and honor him for the next year, as that's a Jewish custom. Uh, And then I'll come and follow you. To which Jesus was basically saying, uh, Jesus said to him, right, let the dead bury their own dead. What he was really meaning is that, hey, don't delay your discipleship any longer, right? There's an urgency in which the kingdom is calling you. Join me right now. And to which this man was also unable to do so. So both of them turned and walked away. And immediately after this, Jesus and his disciples got into the boat. They sailed across the Sea of Galilee, which is this big saltwater lake, right, to go to the other side where our story picks up. But what happens during that journey? You guys remember? Violent storm. Yeah, violent storm. So uh, Jesus was sleeping, you know, therefore kind of validating this idea that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He slept wherever he could, uh, whenever he could. And this violent storm hit uh, and kind of stirring everything up. And the, the, the disciples' faith were truly put to the test, right? Um, Jesus then was woken up while the disciples were freaking out. Jesus uses words and calmed the storm, calms the sea, the waves, the winds. Right? And doing so, it kind of further revealed his divine identity as the disciples began to murmur to one another, what kind of man is this that even the waves and the winds obey him? So it was after these two incidents that Jesus and his disciples arrive at this area of the Gerasenes where they had this encounter with the, uh, with the demon, or with the demon-possessed man, right? They arrived, they met this demoniac. Uh, Jesus performed this exorcism. All the demons got sent into the pigs. The pigs ran off the hill, drowned in the sea. Uh, and then people saw, they were freaking out. They begged Jesus to leave. On the flip side, the, the guy that was uh, kind of cleansed of the demons came and begged Jesus, if I can go with you. And Jesus said no, told them to stay. They got back into the boat. And scripture tells us that they sailed back over to where they had come from. And Jesus continued his ministry there, right? Preaching more sermons and uh, performing more miraculous healings as he was doing before. Now, the reason why I wanted to point out what happened before this passage and what's happening after this passage is because those are really key informing pieces uh, that tells us uh, that they actually went through all this trouble just to go to the other side, just to meet this uh, demon-possessed man just to see his healing, and then to turn around and go back. So I don't know about you, but to me, when I see that, when I make that uh, kind of observation in the passage, it tells me that there is an incredible amount of intentionality that Jesus was taking with this encounter with this demoniac, just to show this man the kind of kindness and the kind of restoration he received that day. And that is the, uh, the intentionality piece is what I want you guys to hold on to as we kind of uh, continue on in this. So I'm going to unpack the passage for us in three points this morning. In your bulletins, you will see uh, a little fill-in-the-blank notes. I'm going to actually give you the answer right now. So this is like one of those, you know, uh, before-the-test review sessions where you get the answers and you can just take with you, all right? So the three points that you see on there is the first one, it talks about Jesus' vulnerability, right? Uh, Jesus' vulnerability that leads to compassion. So this is about Jesus stepping fully into vulnerability uh, to have the kind of compassion for this man who was not doing so well. The second point is about Jesus' authority, how his authority actually is what leads to the full restoration of this man's life. 
Um, and then the third thing is a combination of those first two. The vulnerability piece and the authority piece, those two things in combination is what leads to the flourishing of God's redemptive mission. So let's talk about the first one, okay? The vulnerability piece, the compassion piece, right? So Jesus' vulnerability is what led to the compassion that allowed this encounter to take place. So I want you guys to take a moment and put yourselves in the setting of this story, okay? Uh, and ask yourself, ask, ask yourself the question, how would you have reacted had you been in this story? In fact, I want you guys to imagine with me for a second being in Jesus' shoes, perhaps, being the person who is coming uh, arriving in the area of the Gerasenes by boat, okay? So you're, you're there, you arrive on shore in a foreign land where nobody looks like you, nobody talks like you, nobody smells like you, nobody eats kimchi, nobody is doing anything that you're familiar with because you're in a completely foreign land, right? And, uh, and I want you guys to imagine as you're looking around, finding yourself sticking out like a sore thumb, this seemingly messy, dirty, smelly, homeless dude comes up to you and starts talking to you. Imagine, what does he look like? What does he look like in your mind? Did he perhaps look really dirty? His body is covered with mud stains and all kinds of nasty scum, right? Uh, and then, like, aside from just the looks, like, even before he gets too close, you could probably start smelling him, right? He probably smells pretty wicked, right? He probably smells uh, like he hadn't showered or bathed, and his clothes is all, like, mildewy or, well, actually, no, he wouldn't be wearing clothes, right, because he's naked, right? Uh, but he was exuding the strong odor that you can smell from before even getting too close, right? What about his hair? Was his hair long and maybe messy? Was it all, like, kind of, like, uh, matted and, uh, and, and, and greasy? Um, and then his body, what does his body look like? He was naked, as Scripture tells us, right? And he, it, Scripture also tells us he was cutting himself day and night with stones, so he was probably covered with a bunch of his own scabs and scars and blood, right? And when he opened his mouth and started talking to you, what did he sound like? Was his speech clear or was it somewhat incoherent? Was it hard to understand him? Was he loud? Was he soft? What did he sound like? And and, and then being chained to the tombs, as the scripture tells us, right, and cutting himself every day. I would imagine that the grounds that he was standing on is probably littered with his own bodily waste, and the stains of his own blood. And there's maggots wallowing inside and flies buzzing around. That's a pretty graphic picture that we just imagined, right? And I think when we read this passage, just in the first passing, we don't necessarily get that taste. But I would imagine that actually being in that scene, that's what Jesus perhaps was experiencing, right? Now, that was just the physical appearance, right? What about on a spiritual level? Right? How did you feel about this, the presence of this person? As he looked into the, his eyes and he's talking to you, perhaps you would sense this like something, some kind of deep and dark and evil presence was behind those eyes. Right? And as he's t- talking to you, uh, it says, Scripture says he was shouting, he was screaming, he was screeching. Right? And I'm imagining one of those scary movie scenes where you're hearing like multiple like, scary scenes, right? You know what I'm talking about, yeah, right? And, and it just makes the hair on your back stands up, right, if you don't wax your back like I do, right? So um, just share too much secret there. Um, and then when you're like least expecting, he was probably lunging at you with his chains. You hear the cackling of the chain, right, making your heart skip a beat. So at the sight of this, how would you have reacted? At the sight of that, if that's the first thing you see as you arrive in a new foreign land, how would you have reacted Would you have been like Jesus in that moment? Would you have been able to take his hand and have a conversation with him? Would you have been able to sit down with him and see him also as a child of God who is gripped by the bondage of poverty? Or would you have been able to show the compassion to him as you and I are called to do? I'll be honest with you. If I were there, I probably would not be having a whole lot of compassion. I'd probably be super judgy. I'd probably be like also even almost kind of, uh, uh, kind of annoyed the fact that I can't even understand this guy talking. I probably, wanted to, I probably would have wanted to avoid this man at all costs, right? I probably wanted to just take my disciples, get back in the boat, and turn around right there and then, right? I would not have been able to find the compassion in my heart that I was called to. And compassion is an interesting thing. Does anybody know where the root word compassion actually comes from? If you break down the English word, 
English word compassion. It has two parts there, the prefix calm and the word passion, right? And in, in Latin is calm and passio. Calm is a prefix that we use to describe with, together, right? And passio is actually, it actually straight up means suffering. So when you actually see the word, you know the movie Passion of the Christ, right, with a capital P, that's not just talking about how passionate Jesus was, right? The capital P passion actually is a name given to the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, which is a period of immense suffering. So the word compassion literally means to suffer together with somebody. That is the definition of compassion. And by definition, this is something that is extremely difficult to do. It's, counter, it's counterintuitive to the human mind because who and why would anybody want to choose to suffer? Like anybody like suffering here? If you do, we need to like talk and check to see if you're okay, right? Nobody likes, talk, nobody likes suffering and yet this is the gospel. This is the exact kind of altruism that we are called to live. And this is exactly how Jesus actually demonstrated himself in this moment. He had an acute clarity that the fact of the fact that his mission to this world was to do exactly that. It was to enter into a place where he will be exposed to complete vulnerability in order to love and to die for such a person as this guy. You know, a few months ago, um, it was at the end of April, and I was getting ready to go out of town. Some of my former students would know where I would be going, right? Because at the end of every school year, we have this uh, two weeks of, like, end of the school year uh, statewide conference, student conference. Uh, we call it Focus Week. And Focus Week is a place where our students are invited to worship and to be inspired and ultimately to be equipped uh, to be the kind of missional leaders that will lead movements on their campuses the next semester. And it was a day when I was... Uh, you know, it was the day before I was leaving for those of us who are on staff. We're there for two weeks because different schools have different schedules. So I was, a, so it's, it's basically what I'm trying to say is that this is one of the busiest times in my job, in my career, uh, every year during those two, first two weeks in May. And uh, I'll be, like, I will be gone for two weeks. So, uh, so this last day before I was le- leaving, I was just getting everything ready. Uh, I was running around all over town, picking up things, picking up equipments that I, that I had to bring, and then I also had a bunch of different teaching assignments that I had to uh, finish preparing and things like that. So needless to say, it was one of those crazy days where I just was running around and having all kinds of anxiety, right? Now, during the middle of the afternoon that day, uh, I was somewhere in Winter Park, and I uh, kind of just sort of walked past this lady who was sitting on a bench on the side of the road, uh, an old black lady sitting there, uh, and, uh, you know, as anybody would, I try to be polite. As I walked by, I looked at her, smiled, and I said, hey, how you doing? But the way she responded was surprising. It caught me off guard because instead of just being like, good, and you, as most people would, she actually decided to take a moment and be honest and looked up and said, I'm not good. So then I just carried on with my day and said, cool, see you later. No, I didn't. <laughs> right? Who would do that, Right? Right? Nobody would do that, right? I will, so in that moment, I was just like, okay, uh, now I have to like, actually kind of like take a moment to acknowledge this person and figure out what was going on. So I asked her, what was wrong? Uh, what was going on? Why was she having a, a bad day? Uh, and she told me uh, that she had been on a train, on a train ride from southwest Florida. That's where kind of she lives. Uh, she was on a train on her way up to Georgia. Uh, because she had uh, got connected to some guy up there that is going to be, like, hooking her up with a job. It sounds super sketchy. I don't know what it was all about, uh, but she was going up. Uh, but in, in the middle of the train ride, she had apparently blacked out, uh, and she woke up in a hospital here in Orlando in Winter Park. And, uh, and after she got discharged from the hospital, she had nowhere to go. Uh, the hospital wouldn't keep her overnight. She had no money. She didn't even carry a phone. All she had was a ticket that was still good for the same train that's, hap- that's going to be passing through Winter Park the next morning. Uh, and, uh, and, and she was basically asking people for help, and nobody would help her. And, she, uh, and, and the, par- the park bench that she was sitting on was right outside of a church. And she had already asked the people in the church, uh, and the people in the church told her that they couldn't help her. So she was literally just sitting there not knowing what to do. So for me, you know, knowing that I was having a crazy busy day, 
uh, I somewhat reluctantly just invited her to hop into my car, and I started driving her around town. Uh, we went and got her something to eat, uh, and then I started asking her a little bit more about her life, uh, and, uh, and that's when I found out that she said she has a grown son who is locked up in jail uh, somewhere up in Chicago, uh, and she's basically just trying to find work to get her life back together. Uh, and as I got to hear more and more about her story, my heart began to break more and more for the predicament that she was in. My heart was troubled by how easily we can just turn our eyes from the realities of poverty that's happening right around us and gripping the people right in front of us and keeping them in bondage. And I ended up that day, after an hour or two, taking her to a hotel, and I paid for one night for a room for her to stay in so that she'd have, have somewhere to sleep until the next morning uh, before she had to catch her train. I gave her some more money, and I left, right? Should have felt pretty good about myself, right? I kind of did my you know, deed of kindness of the day. Uh, but honestly, though, for the rest of the day, I felt like this profound sense of sadness about this whole encounter. It just kind of, it just kind of like haunted me for the rest of the day. I, don't, I didn't really know what that was all about. I started to wrestle with the thoughts of, well, could I have done more for her? You know, I thought about like, hey, my wife and I, we have, we have a house. We have, an, we have a guest bedroom. Why didn't I just invite her to come and stay in our room? Uh, why didn't I just, you know, decide that I was going to get up early the next morning and pick her up and take her to the train station instead of letting her, having to figure that out on her own as well. But then at the same time, it was kind of like those moments in the cartoon where you have like the good voice talking on this side and the bad voice coming on the other side, right? The other side of me was thinking, well, you know what? I, uh, I kept justifying that what I had done was like good and enough and it was fine, right? I thought that, hey, you know what? I had so much work that I had to do. This is one of the craziest, busy uh, times where I have so much responsibilities, uh, and I really couldn't have afforded to, like, lose any more time. So whatever, whatever I had did, it was fine. It was good. It was enough. I did, I did somebody good, right? But it wasn't until later that day when it finally actually dawned on me uh, that as I was busy running around preparing all of these things for literally my ministry responsibility, which included teaching and speaking and training students on how to serve the poor, care for the marginalized, and love the least of these, how much of a hypocrite would I have been if the very preparation for me to do those things was the very reason why I couldn't actually stop and actually care for the poor, love the marginalized, and love the least of these? And, if I, and when I examined myself honestly, although I had helped her in that moment to kind of get situated, uh, for the night, in my mind, the whole time I was drawing all kinds of boundaries. I was drawing all kinds of boundaries for what was just convenient enough for me to do, and where would I have to draw the line uh, and say no if they became too inconvenient? Like, somehow, that somehow I would have been uh, vulnerable enough in that moment, so to speak. But you see, for this story that we read today, Jesus, for what Jesus had done for this man in story, not only did he step into vulnerability that led him to a place of deep compassion, but he did it with the utmost intentionality, did he not? He came all the way across from the other side of the water, braving through a storm that almost shipwrecked them, just to meet a loser who was famous for all of his junk. What would the world look like if we had that kind of intentionality behind the nice things that we do for other people? I think we would be able to change the world. Secondly, we're going to talk about Jesus' authority, right? So the vulnerability piece now stepping into authority. The authority that leads to restoration. See, what seems really interesting when you first read this passage, <clears throat> when you first read this passage, is the dialogue of Jesus, well, between Jesus and, this, and the demons, right? First of all, the demons immediately recognized Jesus' identity, right? And then second of all, the demons pleading with Jesus was kind of interesting because they, the scripture tells us that the, the demons called upon the name of God, right? So you would have been like, kind of like, hey, is these, are you stupid or something? Jesus and God is the same thing, same team. So, uh, so apparently the, the, the demon was not so bright, right? And the third thing that was interesting is why the pigs? Why be sent into the pigs? Right? I think to understand some of these, we need to get some like, kind of historical context, cultural context out of the way. Right? First, uh, in ancient times, it was pretty common, actually, uh, to call upon or appeal to a higher spirit in, in order to, to sort of protect yourself. So the demons here recognize that God is the ultimate authority. 
Uh, but what he missed on was that Jesus and God was actually on the same team. So as he attempted to call upon God to prevent Jesus to do him any harm, that proved to be powerless, right? And it's also common for spirits to make concessions. So this is the part about why it has to be sent in the pigs. It's actually, uh, it was common for spirits to make concessions when they can sense that defeat was imminent. So they were being, they were basically asking to be sent into the pigs in order to not have to vanish or, uh, so to speak, be imprisoned, okay? Uh, so Jesus actually grants this request. Uh, but what was beautiful about this is that the demons were still defeated as the pigs ran off into the waters and drowned. Uh, because an ancient understanding it is also a common knowledge that it was believed that demons will either vanish or be trapped and imprisoned when they enter a body of water. So when Jesus did all of these things, he basically started flipping things around. He started making, bringing restoration about to this scenario, right? One, he, began to, uh, he liberated the man from the forces of evil that had kept it in bondage, right? And two, he defeated the demons with his authority. So therefore, bringing about restoration to the man's life, and then also bestowing justice upon the situation by putting the devil in his place. How often, the question I have for us is, how often do we nowadays forget who actually ultimately holds this kind of authority over our lives? I think it's easy for us to read stories like this and just leave it in the story because we live in a modern era where we don't necessarily experience this type of supernatural um, acts of, acts of uh, 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 um, uh, miracles happening, right? Uh, especially nowadays because depending on what kind of church traditions we come from, uh, we even argue and fight all the time about whether or not the you know, manifestation of spiritual things is still a thing, right? Uh, but if we truly believe in the perfect authority that is demonstrated by this Jesus here as the same Jesus that we call our Lord and follow with our lives, then the question that we really need to ask is then, when we're facing this world and we're facing the brokenness all around us, to whom or to what shall we really fear? You know, when I was growing up, um, I lived for a number of years in Taiwan. That's where my uh, par- parents are from. And, uh, and Taiwan is an island nation that's heavily populated by, uh, you know, ethnically Chinese people, um, and, uh, and, and the, the majority of the population practices a combination of Buddhism and, like, other, like, Chinese folk religions, okay? Uh, so what, what happens oftentimes, then, is there's a common practice where people would go and seek out some kind of consultation of uh, what are literally, like, like uh, spiritual mediums uh, whom we oftentimes refer to as fortune tellers, right? I think this is pretty common actually all throughout Asia. To seek the help of fortune tellers, pay them money so that they can uh, supposedly give you a glimpse into your life and into the future and into the kind of giving you advice on what are good versus bad moves to make in order to make the most out of your life. Uh, and a lot of these fortune tellers would be able to claim to tell you that they'll be able to tell you when exactly and to whom you will be marrying and what your family will look like, how many kids you will have, and things like that. Uh, you know, and there's like, I also even know plenty of people, you know, when I went to school in Taiwan where halfway through school, like, all of a sudden, like, their name has changed during roll call, right? Why is that? Because people will literally pay money to these fortune tellers, and they will tell you how your given name was actually bad luck, and they will give you a new name that is supposed to help you to find the most academic achievement or your career development and things like that. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so these are kind of things, right? They'll, they'll be able to tell you if you want to know when exactly and how you are going to die, meet the end of your life, right? This is people with serious anxiety wanting to know that information, right? Now, um, of course, the accuracy of these claims are all, always questionable. You never really know if that's actually true or not, right? And, uh, and, and, but it's, what's interesting is that the Christian community in Taiwan, they interpret these kind of practices as straight-up demonic intervention, right? And, and because of so, uh, we actually have to treat some of these things not always as made up. Some of these things are very real, Right? Some of these things are very real. Now, I remember one time uh, when I was growing up, I heard a story about a young woman that started coming to our church in Taiwan. She was a seeker. She was curious about Jesus. She wanted to get to know what Christianity was all about. Uh, and for, uh, after kind of further getting to know her and things like that, we learned that she had come from a family where she uh, is a daughter of one of these fortune tellers. 
right? And, uh, and, and, and she started sharing with her community that she kind of always, or, or she never felt at peace at home. She always felt like there was kind of a deep, creepy, like dark presence in her house. There was some kind of spirit looming around. Uh, and she just never felt safe. Uh, and, and that's kind of what inspired her to kind of seek out the church, Christianity. And after kind of getting plugged in over time, she eventually made the decision to give her life to Jesus, and she became a Christian. Uh, and, you know, life was good for a while. You know, she was in fellowship. She was in relationship with community. Uh, but after a while, for uh, whatever reason I can't really remember, she hit rock bottom again in life, like some hardships ha- happen in her life. And in her weakness, instead of going to her new fellowship of believers, she found herself going back to one of these fortune tellers uh, to consult them about what's really happening in her life. Uh, but what was really interesting is that this time something drastically different happened. You see, in the middle of her session with this fortune teller, the fortune teller stopped and asked her straight up directly, did you become a Christian? And somewhat puzzled and surprised, she said yes. And the fortune teller told her that he could no longer see anything into her life. For it was a common phenomenon uh, for these fortune tellers that, uh, that they were encountered with people who had become Christians. That something in the spiritual realm had blocked access to information. And in that moment, she was finally convinced, perhaps for the first time, that this Jesus that he had, she had chosen to follow was the true and living God who had authority not only just over her life, but over everything in existence. See, if this story that we read today in Mark, if this story that we read did not include this part about Jesus' divine authority, it would have been just another nice story about how he had compassion. It would have just been a nice, another nice fable that teaches us how we should be nice and care about other people, Right? But this powerful piece of information with this powerful act of exorcism that we read about in response to the compassion that Jesus had for this man is what revealed to all the witnesses of that day who saw this or who, those of us who are reading this story today that Jesus is actually the Messiah, the king, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who has come to make all things new, the one who has come to comfort the afflicted, to set free the captives, and to ultimately restore the downfall of humanity. Amen? Amen. Amen. So it is this perfect combination then of Jesus' vulnerability and Jesus' authority that kind of foreshadowed what was to come. What do I mean by that? If you think about it, if you think about the the gospel story, right, it was the same vulnerability that would ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. Yes? And it was the same authority that would ultimately lead Jesus to be able to conquer and defeat death. These two things work in perfect combination, the vulnerability piece and the authority piece. And those who witnessed what happened that day now have the choice to choose how they might respond to such a miraculous act, and as do we this morning as we read this uh, story. And this brings me to my third and final point. My third and final point is about the flourishing of God's redemptive mission. See, as a result of what was witnessed that day, all the people in this region now had a uh, chance to respond, right? And in Scripture, it's interesting because we see that all of them responded by begging Jesus for something. Did you guys catch that? They all began to beg Jesus for something, but what they were begging for was very different. See, all the townspeople, all the people that witnessed what happened, they began to beg Jesus to leave, right? And on the flip side, the guy whose life was restored, he began to beg Jesus that he could go with him, right? So let's talk about that a little bit, right? The response of the crowd. Why did the people ask Jesus to leave? Well, Scripture tells us there that they were afraid, right? There was fear that was experienced. And I think it's normal to experience fear when you are from a first century non-Jewish society and this like seemingly magician man comes and does all these crazy things, right? Fear is a normal response, I would say. But I think more so though, more so perhaps the, the, the real reason behind the decision to ask Jesus to leave is that the cost of seeing the restoration happen in this man's life was too detrimental for their economy. Right? Remember, they were herding thousands of pigs, and in one swoop, they lost it all. So in order to see this ultimate loser be restored, the townspeople basically lost a great deal of their goods. 
And either way, whether their reason was out of fear or out of the, uh, the, the um, not wanting to lose their profits, uh, we can say that their concern, both of those concerns is rooted in a place of self-preservation. Self-preservation. What do I mean by that? They chose to protect and basically serve themselves instead of rejoicing with this guy because they seemingly think that in doing that, they can take control of their own livelihood and thereby buy into the illusion of being able to control their own destinies. And in doing that, ironically, they turned away the God who had actually come for their own good in the first place. Missed the big time, right? What about the response of the man? Let's talk about that a little bit because I think there's something so intimately happening here, right? So look at me, look at me. Naturally, naturally, after perhaps the greatest transformation of his life, we would expect that this man would have wanted to go with Jesus anywhere he goes, right? He was ready to get into the boat and follow Jesus wherever he would go. The only concern he now had was that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in the continual presence of his Savior that he just met. And yet we saw a major, major contrast of what Jesus does. What do I mean by that? Remember how I talked about earlier, before they crossed over to the sea, there were two guys that wanted to follow Jesus. And both of them were ready, like, both of them were like, we we're ready to jump in, but Jesus kind of spelled out what it actually means, and both of them chickened out, right? After Jesus spelled out the true cost, the true costliness of following him, both of them uh, decided on their own and chose to stay behind and not follow Jesus, right? And now look. Now look, now we got a guy who had truly experienced the power of Jesus and was truly ready to go at all costs, and yet Jesus called him to stay? Jesus called him to stay? Like, what's going on here? I mean, could you imagine what it must have been like for this man to now have to stay in a place that had always hated him? To, all, to now have to stay in a place where he never fit in. After all, this was the place where he was ostracized, where he was outcasted. This was the place where he was literally bound and chained so that people would not have to deal with him. Why would he want to stay in a place like this for another minute? I wouldn't. Would you? And what must have been like for him as he stood on the shores that day and watched Jesus, the only person who had ever showed, paid him any attention, showed him any kind of kindness, get back into the boat and sail off and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I'd be sobbing my eyes out at this point, right? The only thing good anyone has ever done for me now has to leave. I wonder if he was overcome by emotions. I wonder if he was dreading the rest of his life now having to be spent in a place that never even welcomed his existence. But this is a cool part, you guys, because you see, just as Jesus' trip to this place was highly intentional, Jesus' invitation for this guy to stay was also highly intentional. You see, Jesus' invitation to this man was basically this. I want you to go back to where you had come from and I want you to go back to where you were most hated and most rejected. And I want you to give your testimony there. And you will be a witness for me and for the gospel. And this is now your new identity. And in time, you will be with me for eternity. In time. And that's a promise. I just got goosebumps imagining that. You see, Jesus' um, invitation and his call for this man like, we think is, like, I think if we just gloss through the passage, we'll say, like, well, Jesus didn't want him to follow him. In fact, Jesus was actually calling him to follow him, right? Maybe not in a physical sense, but to follow by example. What do I mean by that? You see, Jesus was calling this man now to step fully into vulnerability, just as Jesus had done for him. And Jesus was now calling this man to walk in the authority that has been given to him because of this encounter. And these are the only ways for God's mission to flourish. It's a perfect combination of vulnerability and authority, right? I have a diagram I want to show you guys. So this is a, um, this is a diagram by uh, a man named uh, Andy Crouch. He's a former InterVarsity staff but currently works as the, uh, one of the editorial directors for Christianity Today. Uh, so he's kind of a big deal. But he has this thing called the vulnerability authority paradox, which is this diagram, which shows us that 
uh, in order for things to flourish in society, you actually have to be ready to be fully vulnerable and fully uh, and have full authority. What do I mean by that? If you look at our society today, in fact, this is actually very reflective of what we've been observing in today's political climate, in today's political environment, right? Uh, those who hold all the power, those who are in authority, right, who, which is up that way, they don't want to give any sign of vulnerability because that is seen as weakness, right? So if you have all the authority but you avoid all the vulnerability, it actually puts you to this quadrant to the top left, which puts you in a role in society where you are doing exploitation to people. And on the flip side, those who are fully vulnerable, they don't have a whole lot going on for them, and they're exposed to vulnerability all the time, and the society does not give them any kind of authority, that puts you in the bottom right, which is suffering. That's the role you get to play. And in today's society, how this interacts is that violence flows from the top left to the bottom right. From those who hold all the authority but don't want to be vulnerable to oppress, to ostracize, to marginalize those in the bottom right who are fully vulnerable and have no authority. And all of us, if I were, if I'm made to be honest, we all fall somewhere on this. Uh, it's actually more of a continuum. It's a spectrum, right, from the exploiting to withdrawing to suffering. Because uh, if you, you know, I think mo- uh, many of us, especially those of us that have been in the church and perhaps we're not really engaging too much socially, we get to be in a place where, all right, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of authority, right? I don't really, like, my voice doesn't really matter. But at the same time, I also don't feel like I'm that vulnerable. Nobody really does anything mean to me. Like, I don't really care, blah, blah, blah. That actually puts, in a very da- puts us in a very dangerous place. That puts us in a place of complacency because you get to withdraw. You get to live apathetically because nothing pertains to you, Right? And it's interesting because if you look at Jesus' life, if you look at the gospel, the essence of gospel, it's all about a God of the universe subjecting himself to full vulnerability that leads to the very death on a cross and yet being in an identity that is full of authority, the God of the universe. That's how the mission flourishes, right? So... Jesus was calling this man to basically now walk with both the authority that has been given to him and yet be completely exposed to vulnerability in this place that he is now called to live. And precisely in this moment, I believe that this man became one of the first to live out the reality of when we say the already but not yet. The already but not yet, sometimes it's phrased as the now but not yet if you guys have heard of this, is this idea of, of, uh, of uh, a metacosmos, the in-between space. The already but not yet is a theological concept uh, where believers are actively taking part in the kingdom, even though the kingdom won't reach its full expression until sometime in the future. In other words, we are already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see its full glory. So it's this idea that, the, that Christ's finished work on the cross has already taken place, but as Christ's followers, we are still living in a fallen world, and we are still fighting against principalities and against powers, against forces of darkness and evil, until the very end when we get to see the full restoration of the kingdom bring to, brought to completion. So my friends, my question for you this morning is, do you long for that day? Do you long for that day when the kingdom is brought to completion? I think this is an important question that we need to ask ourselves daily because that, otherwise we become complacent in this place and we begin to settle in this place. Do you long for Jesus the same way this man longed for Jesus as he was now called to a lonely life of a missionary in a place where he was hated and would never fit in? I think the truth is all of us have experienced this type of deep longing, uh, whether it's directly connected to the kingdom or it's misplaced somewhere else, right? And there's actually a name for this feeling of longing. Uh, So C.S. Lewis, um, this deceased uh, theologian, uses a German term to describe this feeling. Uh, And the term is called sensucht, S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. Write that down. Really interesting, look it up. Sensucht, S-E-H-N, 
S-U-C-H-T, sensucht. So he uses the word, a German word sensucht to des describe this longing. And it is, de it is uh, uh, defined as the inconsolable. So sensucht is defined as the inconsolable longing in the human heart for we know not what. The inconsolable longing in the human heart for we know not what. So the idea of sensucht has actually been used uh, to argue for the existence of God. What do I mean by that? So just like, you know, you guys... How many of you guys are hungry right now? Some of you guys? I haven't ate since like last night, so I'm hungry. Yeah, a couple of, thank you for your vulnerability back there. I love it. Yeah, so, uh, so just like our hunger in our bodies points to the fact that there is food that will actually satisfy this hunger and we'll be okay, just like our thirst, you know, points to the fact that there's water that we can drink that will quench our thirst. The deep longing in our hearts points to the fact that perhaps this world and its current reality is not the ultimate place. And there's actually a satisfaction found somewhere else. Uh, the deep longing in our hearts for what we do not understand points to the fact that the ultimate satisfaction of our hearts is not found in this world. That our, our souls actually find home in a not yet state of the kingdom. So I think all of us can actually recall moments where we experience that in life. It's really interesting because it comes up in different places for different people. And sometimes you don't necessarily even know that that's what it is. Uh, for some of us, it's like every year when you come out of winter and spring is breaking through and you see the tiny little green buds of leaves coming out of tree branches. And you feel the sense of joy inside of you. For some of us, it's like uh, you smell somebody mowing the lawn, your neighbor, and that, that fresh clip grass smell makes you think about childhood summer times when you were joyful and before problems, adult problems entered into life, right? For, for some of us, it's the way you hear music, and the music just moves you in such a way and takes you to places that you cannot understand, Right? For some of us, it's traveling and standing in awe of some landscape that is massive in front of you that reminds you of just how small you are. Right? For some of us, it's the feeling you get when you get those sand between your toes when you're standing, uh, standing on a beach late at night uh, where there's a cool breeze and you look up, there are countless stars littered all over the sky for as far as the eye can see. For others of us, uh, especially, you know, uh, this is a very missional church, right? We engage in a lot of missions and we create a lot of new relationships, right? I think some of us, you feel that feeling when you feel that nostalgia and grief when you're saying goodbye to friends whom you do not know when the next time you're going to see them and if even a reunion is actually certain. I remember when I was uh, finishing my summer in Mongolia during college, uh, we were leaving and we were in that airport kind of at the security checkpoint where only the passengers can pass through and people sending you off can't go through anymore. And I remember looking back, we were crying and the, the students that we had spent all summer with are standing there crying, sending us off. And then just this feeling of like, I don't know if I'll ever see them again. And I remember I turned around and I snapped the picture. Uh, I wish I still have that picture, but this was, like, way before, like, you can take pictures on your phone and stuff like that. Uh, but there, that picture is imprinted in my mind because I see on the faces of those people that inspires this deep longing of this feeling of, like, this can't be it. This can't be it. Right? Sensucked is exactly it. It's an emotional process that can move us into tears for no apparent reason. Right? You can't control it, nor do you actually want to. You just let it happen without the need to explain or justify it to anyone. Right? C.S. Lewis continues and furthers, uh, describes this feeling this way. He says, sensect, uh, uh, in, in regards to sensect, the experience is one of intense longing. The sense of want is acute and even painful. Yet, the mere wanting is felt to be somehow a delight, even when there is no hope of possible satisfaction. The longing itself continues to be prized and even to be preferred to anything else in the world. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? See, I think this man in our story today, only a deep of longing for the kingdom like that could have sustained the lonely life of a missionary he was now called to live. You know, my colleague on staff from FSU, so Jocelyn's old staff, Peter, uh, he, uh, so he, he recently told me about a recent visitor, visit to uh, Israel. Uh, his dad is like one of the bishops in the Anglican church or something like that. So they organize these yearly, like almost like a religious pilgrimage to Israel uh, for, for Christians who want to understand and learn more about the historical context and um, 
Yeah, and cultural context of and places of significance in the Bible. And he told me that one of his uh, most interesting facts that he learned from his recent visit was through a tour guy who was also kind of this biblical scholar. Uh, and you got to take this with a grain of salt because I don't have any data for this, uh, so it could be largely speculative. But I still think I think I think it's a very important and significant observation. Uh, he said that um, during the Byzantine period, which is about three to four hundred years after Christ. Um, uh, they did an archaeological excavation uh, on multiple sites, and they did excavations on both sides of the Galilee, on the west side, which is largely Jewish, and on the east side, which is largely Gentile. And what they found is that they found way more evidence of early Christian gathering places in the Gentile region than they did on the Jewish region, suggesting that more churches were actually planted as a result of this garrison demoniac that we read about today than the churches that were initially planted by the disciples themselves. That he perhaps was a more effective missionary after this encounter. You see, Jesus called this man now to walk with the rest of his life with his authority while boldly staying in a place where he would be exposed to the most amount of vulnerability. And because of that, God's mission flourished. As the scripture closes by telling us that all the people were amazed. Right? That's evidence that we actually get to see still today. So as I come to close this morning, I want to ask whether or not we can find this deep sense of longing for the kingdom in our own lives. I think this is vitally important um, because when I think about moments in my life where I have experienced the most deep intimacy with the Lord, there were never uh, moments when ministry was going great. There were never moments where life is without stress. There was never moments where there's no pressure to make ends meet or pay the bills. Uh, but in fact, the moments I experience the most amount of intimacy with the Lord are actually moments where I get to taste some of those small glimpses where I get to be reminded of the not yet state of the kingdom because there's deep dissatisfaction around me. And in those moments, I draw close to Jesus, and it drives a deep sense of longing for when Jesus will actually finally come and bring his kingdom into completion, into full restoration for all creation. And in those moments, the affairs of the world and in my personal life, no matter how great they seem at other times, become minuscule to me. Harvest, as we continue to live in such a time as right now in North America, I believe that we need to be reminded of what it looks like to press in and to lean in to the already but not yet. Especially in today's political climate, right? Um, as we seek to follow Jesus these days, it's gotten to the point where if you really want to follow Jesus, then we really fit in nowhere. We really fit in nowhere. We don't fit in with the secular world, where, uh, nor do we fit in with what is the church, what the church perhaps has become, Right? See, our unwillingness to compromise our values makes us very unpopular amongst the secular world, right? But then at the same time, our conviction to actually live radically into vulnerability for this Jesus also makes us stand at odds, ironically, with those labeled as evangelicals today, right? If you really want to follow Jesus today, we actually fit in nowhere. And just like this ultimate loser that we encountered, that Jesus encountered in our story today, where his peers would rather protect their own means and, and over rejoicing uh, over his, um, his restoration. We too are called to advance the gospel in a hostile place where we will be rejected, where we will be ostracized, where we will be hated, and where we ultimately will not fit in. So tell your neighbor, stop trying to fit in, right? Stop trying to fit in. But will we let the longing for this not yet state of the kingdom sustain us as we press on, as we lean in? Are we like this man here in this story today, willing to take on the role as, sojour as a sojourner and live with, a, with, with an acute awareness of the fact that our prize actually isn't found in this world? So my question for us is, will you move into the rest of this week paying attention to where in your life, Jesus might be plucking at the strings of your heart and reminding you of his not yet state of the kingdom. And when you find those places, when you find those places, will you willingly expose yourself to the same kind of vulnerability while walking and knowing that Jesus' authority has already been given to us as we wait for and actively partake 
in the redeeming work of the gospel. Amen? All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for the amount of truth and knowledge and wisdom that such an interaction, such an unlikely, unexpected interaction inspired 2,000 years later. We just ask that you will come now, and as we close off this, uh, this morning's worship service, would you use it as a launch pad that sends us out? Uh, would you give us boldness as we seek the different facets and different areas of our life, whether that's at school, whether that's at work, um, places where you are calling us to be vulnerable and yet carrying the authority that you have given us? so that we might make a difference, so that we might leave this world knowing that it is left at a better place than before. As we look forward to your kingdom, as we continue to long for that day, Lord, would you remind us every day that that is the home that calls our names, not anything else in between. Would you give us the application to live this out this week, Lord? We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.